We're going to have a lot of fun today. No idea where we're going to end up. All right. Um, the uh, beginning part of Sefer Shmot. And of course, the hero of Sefer Shmot and the hero all the way through Sefer Dvarim is none other than Moshe Rabbeinu. And in the past, we've looked at the beginning of Sefer Shmot and the decrees. Uh, we've also spent time looking at the birth of Moshe and his miraculous salvation and how that was something of a foreshadowing of the salvation of B'nai Israel. Um, we also looked at the Sneh, which is the centerpiece of the Parsha. Uh, and last year we looked at the weird, bizarre event that took place in the inn uh, with Tzipporah and with the blood and uh, Milah, very bizarre thing. Today I'd like to look at something that we skipped, which is the story of Moshe Rabbeinu in between his... Uh, grow, is being brought into the palace and the snap, which is essentially what source one is begins in the middle of chapter two of Shmot. The English is underneath. Right, and you see the translation underneath. And in honor of Jason, of course, we have the questions. Now, this is such a popular story, such a well-known story, that we run into the same problem we run into with all the popular material in Tanakh. We know it so well that we don't pay attention to how many problems are on the text. We even picture it playing out, because there have been all sorts of movies and animations made that we think we know what it looks like. An example, in the earlier part of this parak when we have Moshe being put into the Teva, I ask everybody, anybody, from whatever walk of life, okay, what happened to the Teva at that point? And they all give the same answer. It was rolling down class four rapids, and Ofer Chazah was singing in the background. Right? And you take a look at the text, and you see that it didn't move anywhere. That's an example. So, we have a script that we read in our head that goes along with the text, but it may not be an accurate script. So we have to look at it Fresh. Okay. Now, now, he kills the Egyptian and buries him. It comes out the next day. And there's two Hebrews that are fighting. Okay. Famous line. And by the way, we learn an important halacha from there. Because, although the proper translation is, why are you hitting your fellow, could be read as, why are you about to hit your fellow? And this fellow is already called a rasha, from where we learn a halacha. Kol hamerim yad nikra rasha. Anybody who threatens violence is already a rasha. And by the way, it would be pasul edut as a result. Right? Good. A couple years ago, we looked at how much time passed in between all these events, um, because Moshe seems to be relatively young when this whole story starts, and by the time you get to the snat, he's apparently around 80. In the past, we've also discussed who Kohen Midian is, and who Yitro is, and who Chobav is. Excuse me, Vayakum Moshe Vayoshian Vayashket Tsunam. 
and that takes us from the adoption of Moshe and being given his name, his adoptive name of Moshe, all the way to the end of his time in Midian, because the very next passage is the three psukim that take a switch heavenward. And God sees what's happening in Israel, and B'nai Israel cry out to God, and God remembers the Brit, and the very next thing is the snap, where this all comes together. So my question is, actually, I have seven questions here, right, because why not? Um, but if you take a look at this text, there are all sorts of problems with it. Let's start with the first one. Moshe goes out to see Echad. Now, who are Echad? It's part of the tension of Moshe's identity. Are Echav Egyptians or Hebrews? And so the text resolves it, but, be, but first it gives us a tease. He goes out to see his brothers, and now he sees a fight between two of his brothers. One brother on this side, one brother on that side. Who is he going to side with? At what point okay. does Moshe know who his brothers are? Well, he, he know probably he knows it from birth, because he, he was brought up in his own home. But remember, he has a double identity. He's a prince. And on the other hand, he's got his own ethnicity that he's certainly aware of, right? Um, so it's resolved, but first the text gives us a little bit of a sense of the tension. Okay, very nice. But here's the thing. Now, you ask anybody on the street, ask Alex Trebek, who is the Egyptian? And the answer will be, and then he'll say, you don't get any money because you have to say a question. What is a taskmaster? Right? Okay? What is a taskmaster? Who's the Ivri? A slave. Who said? Take a look at the text again. Where does it say the Egyptian's a taskmaster? Master, and where does it say the Hebrew is a slave? It says there's an Egyptian striking a Hebrew. But we don't know who they are. Were there Hebrews who were not slaves? We, haven't, we don't know. And certainly there's Hebrews that aren't slaves every minute of the day. And there's certainly Hebrews and Egyptians who interact in other ways, as we see later on with the request or the demand or the borrowing, whatever you want to call it, of the gold and the silver. So we don't know who they are. So it's important to remove the script and read what the text actually says. All right. She looks both ways and sees there's nobody there. Why? Why? What? There's no convert in the future. Nice drash. Shot. I know, that's dry. Right, what's Pshat? He looks both ways, and he sees there's no man. This is for the first one, right? First one. Yeah, yeah. So why is, he, why is he looking to see if there's no man? I guess he's going to do something. And therefore? Doesn't want to get caught. Doesn't want to get caught. Or another possibility. He looks both ways and sees there's nobody else who's going to intervene. Right. Where there's no man, be a man. Nobody's taking a good job. Step in. On the other hand, what's the implication? If somebody else is stepping in, step back. Let them do it. Not let them do it like abdicating responsibility, but somebody else wants to cover. Let them take the cover and step back. But if nobody's going to do it, you've got to step into the breach and take charge. So, Vayarkinish doesn't necessarily mean I don't want to get caught. Vayarkinish may mean I see nobody else is going to intervene on behalf of this guy getting hit, whoever the guy is. 
So I'm going to intervene. What does he do? Isn't that, isn't that, that feels like drash also. It seems like shot is just, there was nobody there. Correct. I'm agreeing nobody's there. Yeah. But why is he, why does he only act when he sees nobody's there? Is he sees nobody's there and therefore I won't get caught? Or as I see nobody's there and nobody else is going to intervene to help? The read is more natural to say he doesn't want to get caught. Why or where do you get that from? What makes the read more natural? Because it feels like a physical thing. Because what? There's not, there's actually right, right, no, no. I'm totally physical. I, I'm totally physical. I'm not playing a game here. I'm, I mean, literally, he looks around and sees there's nobody there. Right? Now, why is he looking? I'm just asking, why is he looking? But you're saying I'm not saying he's seeing something different. It's not like he doesn't see a, a man. No, 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 no. He looks around, there's nobody there. If he saw somebody there, then there'd be a different question. Is that somebody else? Somebody's going to intervene? Okay, but in the meantime, he looks around, there's nobody there, but why is he looking? Is he looking because he wants to act in discretion? Or is he looking because he wants to see if anybody else is going to take action? It's not clear. Except for the follow-through. Once he looks, and then he hits. There's no right, exactly. That's exactly my point. He looks to see if there's nobody there. When he, if it, we don't know what would have happened had he seen somebody there, would he have just stepped back? Would he have gone to the other guy and said, "What should we do?" Would he have looked at the guy and said, "Hey, are you going to step in?" If not, we don't know because it never happened. There was nobody there. But my question is, why is he looking to see if nobody's there? If anybody's there, and he sees nobody's there, and he goes into action, I don't think that there's anything more compelling about saying that he was looking to not get caught as much as he was looking to see if anybody was going to step in. The, the text doesn't. Direct us in either in either way. Alright, so he buries him. By it's by Oshini, and this story gets even wilder. But, but, but one second, why did he bury him? Because no dead. one saw him kill him. Why does he need to bury he's him? He's dead. He's dead. So? So understand, we're just supposed to leave him there rot? No one saw him, it doesn't matter. Actually it would take more time for him to bury the guy and not get caught than to just run away. So you actually seem to be supporting what I'm saying is that he wasn't about get, not getting caught, he was about nobody else is acting, so I'll act. Because he did stick around longer to bury him. The answer is we don't know. We also don't know what this means because that's not how they buried people in those days. So it seems like, it's like he's hiding him. It seems that way. Okay? But again, we, we just don't have the information. And we need to erase the script that we've all grown up with to be able to read the text straight. Here it gets even more confusing. By it's by a machine, and we assume by Yom means the next day after that. That's a fairly safe assumption. What does he see? Two Hebrews are fighting. What does that mean, two Hebrews are fighting? It means two Hebrews, they're not necessarily slaves, doesn't say Avadim, right, are fighting with each other. Who's the bad guy? One of them. Well, it doesn't sound like it, because is not which is what you just had. It's Shnei sounds like there's a fight where both guys are fighting with each other. It's on an equal plane, as opposed to one guy striking a smaller, lower, subservient, whatever, which he had in the first case. Okay, good. At that point, if Moshe wants to intervene, what should he do? Break it up. Break it up. It was say to them, break it up. You in your corner, you in your corner. But instead, what happens? Vayomer la rasha. Do you understand the problem? Who's he talking to? One of them. Which one? We don't know. But clearly one of them is the one that the text is identifying as the bad guy. And what does he say to the rasha? Lama takereacha. Why are you hitting a fellow? Oh, wait a second. What about the other guy? 
this whole thing is unclear. And let's keep it unclear for a bit. There, there, I think there's a solution to it, which may be um, somewhat instinctive to answer, and may be correct. But I want to hold it for a little bit because it's going to shed light on something you wouldn't have expected. What happens to Moshe when he? Oh, sorry, I, I skipped. Sorry. He said to him. Now the him is Moshe. Who's he speaking? One guy is speaking. Now you got to play this out in your head. There's two guys fighting. Moshe comes up to them and says to one guy, "Why are you going to strike your friend?" And he turns around to Moshe and Lamb. What's the other guy doing? We don't know. But he's not part of the scene. He's he's part of the scene, but he doesn't have any lines. What's in with the guy who was being kissed by the mistress? Okay, good. So you have an active and a passive. The problem is, that would be great for to accept, the text describes them very differently. In the first interaction, there's an ishmitri make ishivri. Right? Here, it's nitzim. They're fighting with each other, and yet, we identify one as the rasha. That's the one Moshe speaks to. And what does that guy say back? Mouth back to Moshe. Who appointed you in charge of us? By the way, he's speaking to a member of Egyptian royalty. Interesting that he uses the, the question Sar, the word Sar. Actually, I was made a Sar. All right? What you intend to kill me? Just like you killed the Egyptian. Now, the simple read of this, this phrase seems to throw us back to the question I asked before and say, oh, Moshe was acting without anybody there because he was hoping not to get caught, but not necessarily. Reality is there's nobody there, which means maybe Moshe was looking around to see if anybody was there to intervene, didn't see it, so he intervened. But bottom line, by the time he was finished burying the guy, nobody had shown up, which means he assumed that nobody knew about it. And now he suddenly realizes they know about it. By the way, how would they know about it? There's only one way. The guy who he saved went and told. Now, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. The guy who saved went and told, I can't believe it. Some Egyptian was beating the heck out of me, and the Egyptian prince comes and kills him. Wow. The guy Musa, right? Moses, whatever they so called the him. So it's, we, we don't know. We don't know. And we don't know if either one of these, by the way, it doesn't sound like either one of these is the guy from yesterday. Right? Because otherwise he'd look at him and say, why do you tell? no well, it depends. If you said he Anish means there was no mensch around, then there were plenty of people seeing him. Except that then he wouldn't be surprised. Well, then you, so you have just to say there is one theory. that there's not necessarily. When I said Anish, I meant like Julie said. There's nobody there. But the why? question is why? Why is nobody there important? Is nobody there meaning there's nobody else who will act? So I got to act. That's my point. If there was nobody, if there were people there who would, but nobody who would act. Then there were plenty of people who saw it. Exactly. No, I, I agree. When he killed the Egyptian, there was nobody. There was nobody there. If 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 he, if he killed the Egyptian, he killed the Egyptian. Clear that there were three people there: Moshe, dead Egyptian, live Hebrew. That's all. The, my question was not what does Ish mean. Ish means a person. But why was Moshe looking around? I don't. I'm not saying Ish means two different things. Ish means a person. But why was he looking around? If he was looking around to say, will anybody else intervene? Then, you know, I go talk to him. Why are you watching this and not intervening? And some man don't know, right? There's nobody else, so you got to act. As opposed to, I see that I can do it and get away with it, so I do it and get away with it. So that, I think, is still, is still open. 
He says, Now notice, by the way, that in these psukim, there have been some passages from Bereshit that are quietly invoked. When the guy who Moshe accuses, and we don't know, we don't, we'll never know which one it is, but why he's only picked on one instead of both, says to him, It reminds us of an interesting scene in Bereshit. And what's that scene? Another confrontation where a man stands up to an ugly crowd. You've come and you've suddenly made yourself our judge. Exactly the same phrase. The people of Stom Talot. Now, I'm not sure what if there's an inherent connection, but I want you to notice something. We think Chazak Chazak Benit Chazek is a break. And Ve'ela, Shmot Bnei Yisrael, aha, to the Sefer. And the famous Ramban at the beginning of a literary unit. You have to remember, first of all, it starts Ve'ela Shmot. And that Vav is very important. Because what the Vav tells you is that Sefer Shmot, and it's not just the Vav, Sefer Shmot is the expression, this is the famous Nitziv, is the, is the realization of all of the promises and potential that are buried in Sefer Breshit. Brit Ben Amitarim is buried in Breshit, and it comes to fruition in Sefer Shmot. And so you find all sorts of links with issues in Breshit and wording in Breshit that come in this story to sort of make that connection. Another one, when Yaakov wakes up after that dream in Betel, he says, <clears throat> um, he has the pass, I have it on the back here, take a look at source 3. V'yikatsi Yaakov mishnato v'yomer achen yesh Adonai v'alkom achen is a relatively rare word in Tanakh. Means indeed, God is in this place, and I didn't know. And he has fear, and he says, etc., etc. And notice, Moshe uses the same phrases here. Now, Moshe didn't say this. Moshe was speaking Egyptian, but Hakadosh Baruch Hu told Moshe, "I want you to write down in, in with these words." And he's approximate Yaakov's words after he wakes up from this dream where he suddenly realizes he's in a, in a holy place, a special place of God. And here, where's Moshe? In the middle of Egypt. middle of a fight with these uh, Ivrim. But maybe you get the sense that there's something very big going to happen here, soon. Like a foreshadowing of it, which we get from the whole story with Yaakov. And by the way, in the case of Yaakov, that place is a special place, but Yaakov only comes back years later, after going into exile and shepherding for his father-in-law and comes back all those years later and then finally the holiness of the place is realized. You understand how Moshe does the same thing. And by the way, why does Moshe have to run away? Because a family member wants to kill him. Why does Yaakov have to run away? Because a family member wants to kill him. So there's all sorts of patterns from Bereshit that are now being picked up in Shmok. But now take a look at the further on in the story... And immediately Moshe goes to Midian. Not immediately, Moshe ends up in Midian. And then we have the famous third story, which is the story of Benot Ruel. They're out shepherding, and, and, and Moshe sees them, and you find the following. What's Tidlena mean? They came and they drew water. 
The interesting thing is, what's the normal word used in the Torah to say draw water? Lishov. Right? But the word used in the Rivka story is Lishov, to draw water. Here, and it's rel- it's very rare in Tanakh, the verb dalo, which is to go down and up, is used. What are the, the Egyptian what are the Midianite girls doing? They're Vatibulana, they're they're drawing water. They can't draw water yet because the locals won't help them. What does Moshe do? Moshe stands up, beats them off, and then he himself goes down and draws the water. They come back, the father said, how do you get home so early? Which, by the way, should remind us of another story. Yitzchak says to Yaakov, how do you get here so quick with the, with the game? Again, a Breshit story coming back. And they say, oh, an Ishmitzri saved us from the Roim. The gam dalo dalalanu. This word appears over and over here and hardly anywhere else. We use it metaphorically. But we don't use it in the literal word meaning of, of drawing water, except here. Why is it being used here? Very strange. And then what happens afterwards? They abandon him, so Ruel says, go bring him in. He says, he has food. He agrees to stay there, and then he gives Tzipporah. Tzipporah marries him, and he has a son named Gershom. He says, Ger ha'iti be'eretz nochriah, which is almost exactly Nashan Elohim at Kolamali Yosef naming his son of Mitzrayim God help me in, in a foreign place it's a similar piece so there's all sorts of brashy things that keep rolling around but the text itself is problematic it's weird well, it's like he got to the well right? Yaakov gets to the well right after he runs away from Esau exactly right? what, what a, uh, somebody who uh, I worked with years ago used to call the famous singles well of brashy Right, suddenly shows up in Shmuk. Right, and that's where they all meet. Actually, only two people met that way. But if you want to put uh, Rivka in the in the mix, it's three. So the real sto- the question I want to ask is, why do we need to hear these stories at all? In other words, go from Moshe, whom we need to hear about his birth and the foreshadowing to the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, being saved from the water, and he's in the palace. And why don't you just? have, if you want, uh, that, uh, that Moshe identifies with his brothers, Paro gets angry, he runs away and he goes to the desert and he goes to the snack. You could have done all of it, you don't need these stories. Why do you need the story of him killing the Egyptian? Why do you need the story of him interfering with the fight of the two Jews and the way they respond? Why do you need the story of that? So you could say, oh, it shows you Moshe's great character. Yeah, but we got a whole chumash to read that. It shows you why Moshe is chosen. Well, not really. Because What's Moshe chosen for? He's chosen for leadership. Moshe does not really show leadership here. As a matter of fact, Moshe looks, excuse me for saying, but he looks a lot more like Reuben than Yehuda in these scenes, doesn't he? Right? He acts impulsively, he gets involved, doesn't create an alliance. So it doesn't really tell us about his leadership. It does tell us about his character. He's concerned about the downtrodden, and he wants to intervene, and he, he, he's surprised that the Hebrews, who are themselves downtrodden, are fighting with each other. They should be helping each other. Okay, fine. Oh, beautiful, beautiful messages. I don't know what the story's here for. So turn the page, and we see something that's, that's quite remarkable. Um, later on, Moshe Rabbeinu leads us to Harsinai. Kodesh Baruch comes down and says ten utterances, which are mistranslated as the Ten Commandments. 
And B'nai Israel at that point freak out and say, too much for us, you go and get the rest of the laws and bring them back to us. And Moshe Reino goes into the cloud at the foot of the mountain, Hashem speaks to him and says, Ko Torah B'nai Yisrael, Temer Item, etc., Ve'ela Mishpatim, etc., and we hear a bunch of laws. Okay? Near the beginning of that law book, as it's called, Sefer Abrit, you have the following passage. V'chiyaket, source four. V'chiyaket yishetavon. This one I translated, you'll see, um, uh, I didn't translate it, I wrote a note afterwards. I wrote a note after eight also. You'll see why. There's some interesting parallels going on. If a man strikes his own slave and he dies, but man, the slave shall be avenged. What that means, unclear. But if the slave recovers, then there is no Nekama because it's actually owned by the owner. And whatever that may mean, I'm not concerned with it because I'm concerned with what comes next. This is a very famous case, and this, by the way, is a case that's been bandied about in discussions about abortion and in discussions about involuntary manslaughter and all sorts of other things because it's a fascinating case. It's also a case that is the first time that we hear Lex Talionis, the famous Nayan Tachanayan, which is more importantly Nefesh Tachat Nefesh and all the death penalty discussions that we have. I'll start here. There's so much in this. How does it start? Now notice, where do we hear that phrase before? Two guys are fighting. I was pictured this is a football game, but now it's my no, my my wrong because nitzim. Two guys are fighting, and what they do? They crashed into or pushed whatever it is a pregnant woman. which means she miscarried. but there was no tra- tragedy, meaning she didn't die. I know she Actually, I said it wrong. He has to pay. Who? Two guys are fighting. They crash into a pregnant woman and cause a miscarriage. He has to pay. Who's he? See the problem? Now, ask a different question. What was the woman doing there? What's she doing there? Two guys are fighting and some pregnant woman just standing around eating ice cream. What's she doing? Whose baby is it? What? No, no, that's not at all part of this. Not all part of this. All right, now, lest you think that these two guys are totally wrestling and the woman just standing by and they crash into her, terrible, terrible tragedy. I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I was so caught up in the fight, I didn't notice you there. What happens if she dies? You kill the guy who was fighting and crashed into her. Which, by the way, tells us that what else is there besides him crashing into her? There's intent. Wait, Whoa! The guy who pushed? The guy who, pushed the guy who crashed into her. The guy who crashed into her, we think, because notice what's happened here. Two guys are fighting, and they push a pregnant woman. So if she loses the babies but she doesn't die, then he, who's he, has to pay. But if she dies, then he is killed. Nefesh tachat nefesh. A life for a life. Not two lives for a life. Wait a second. Which one? I don't know if it's Bob or Jim. I, but how did, it, how did it suddenly become one? Oh, gee, this reminds me of another story. What story? Moshe and the two Ivrim fighting. They're fighting with each other, and it seems. And Moshe says, La Rasha, la And he's the one who talks back. And the other guy seems to melt in the background. Hmm. Okay. 
By the way, there's something else that happened. Take a look, and it's why. What is this law preceded by? What's the law just above it? Slave. A law of a master hitting a slave, which may indeed be the setting. So now these two laws are next to each other because they are stories that happen to Moshe Rabbeinu. It's a man hitting a slave, followed by two people fighting, and then what happens? There's a third person who intervenes. Who's the third person here? Pregnant lady who intervenes. He crashes into her. Well, they crash into her, but he has to pay. Who's the E? One of them evidently takes it to her. The one maybe that she says to him, stop fighting. Now you think I'm making this up, right? Out of, out of whole cloth. Please take a look at source five, and you'll see that it's not out of whole cloth. What are the five payments that a person has to pay if they, if they physically assault a person and cause damage? There's five kinds of payment. What do you have to pay? First mission in the eighth parak of Balakama, Nezek, Sa'ar, right? You have to pay the actual damage, the pain, Ripui, medical bills, Shevet, lost wages, and Boshet, the shaming. And everyone has their own categorical definitions. What do we learn Boshet from? Nezek, we learn from all over the place. Ripui and Shevet is from one pasuk, Sa'ar, we learn from another particular place, from perhaps Monas. What do we get Boshet from? Take a look at source 5. Ki yinatsu, ooh, there's that word again. Ki yinatsu anashim. Two men are fighting. Yachtav Yishrachiv. Two brothers, two, right? Vikarva ishatai echad mahatzilat yisham miyad makeil. And what happens? One of the wives intervenes to try to help her husband. And what happens? Vishachai yadav echzika b'mivushad. She reaches in, she grabs him by the unmentionables. All right? The katsotat kapa, which is not to be taken literally like all of those terms in the Zikin, but rather you make her pay. What's the payment here for? Not for damages, not for repuy. There's only thing left is for the shaming. Oh, that's where we learn bojit from. I'm not concerned with how we learn it from there. That's not a topic. But the point is, again, the, the two men are fighting. There's Nitzim, and there's a third person intervening. And again, interestingly enough, that third person here is a woman who's intervening. In this case, she's intervening inappropriately, and acts inappropriately, and as a result, she's actually fine. But notice that whenever you have Shnei Nitzim, there's a third party. By the way, take a look here in the famous story of the two Nitzim. Otherwise, every time Nitzim shows up in Tanakh, it's like this. Where else does Nitzim show up in Chumash? It shows up in two other places. It shows up in the end of Parshat Amor. Two guys go out into the camp. Two guys fight. And one guy curses God. And that's the famous Mikalel. There's three parties here. What are the three parties? One guy, the other guy, and God. You also have the word Nitzim, the verb Nitzim used to describe Datan and Aviram's actions. Datan and Aviram are a unit. Actions against Moshe and Aaron. And who's the third party? Hashem. But the real capper is a story that happens that we studied here together many years ago in Shmuel Bet Perak Yudalit. Alright, just a quick, quick story. Shmuel Bet, in the middle of it, is David and Bathsheba. We don't have to go over that because Leonard Cohen passed away recently, so everybody knows the story of David and Bathsheba. Right? Um, um, after David and Bathsheba, Amnon rapes his own sister, his half sister, Tamar. Av Shalom. And David doesn't say anything. 
and evidently Rabbi Tzadik say anything because who's calling the kettle black? And Avshalom, who is Tamar's full brother, takes vengeance and kills Amnon. It's a t- terrible series of things happening in Beit David. And Avshalom runs away, and David really doesn't do anything to get him back, even though Avshalom was David's favorite. David is so angry at Avshalom, doesn't want to see him. Yoav, David's general, gen- David's chief of staff, wants to unite them. So what does Yoav do? He plants a Isha Chachama from Tekoa. And she comes to David and says, Adonai Melech. And remember, in biblical times, with Paro, with David, with all sorts of kings, individuals could just come right up to them in the street and say, please hear my case, and they hear the case, and they would take care of them, or not. All sorts of examples in Tanakh. And she goes, here's the story. What's the story? She says, Aval isha omana ani None of this is true. I'm a widow. My husband died. I have two sons. There we go again. Two of them are fighting. Nobody could stop them. One of them killed the other. Which may solve everything for us. And all the family has told me I should hand over the killer so that they can kill him. Right? And then what will happen? Then they will destroy whatever I've got left. They've got one son left. They want to kill him. None of this is true. However, why is she telling the story? Because she wants David to say, look, Avshalom killed Amnon. Now you want to give it to Avshalom too. You're losing all your sons. And David gets it and he invites Avshalom back. It's not strong enough, and that's where the merit comes from. And Avshalom, in the end, it gets killed anyways. But notice the story. There are two people fighting, and there's a third victim. Where the third victim is? The mother. Now, there's a made-up story. The third victim is the mother. He's going to lose everything. So there seems to be a pattern going on here. And so now we can use this in a double mirror form, where the law helps to inform the story and the story helps to inform the law. And now I can understand why the stories are told about Moshe. What was the case where Moshe intervened with the two, with the two fighters? He intervened with two fighters, but clearly there was one who was the instigator. That's the Rasha, Lama We then read that story and see it as a template for the law about the pregnant woman. And we suddenly understand, why was this pregnant woman there? And lest we say there was no such thing in the ancient world as a woman intervening in a fight with men, we have a clear case of that in divine. <coughs> so the pregnant woman is there evidently to try to intervene and stop these guys. So what happened? What did they do? They crash into her. But clearly the crashing into her, at least on one of their parts, had to be deliberate. Why? Because he could be killed for it if she dies. So it has to be a, a deliberate act. So suddenly we're getting new light into understanding what the halakha, what the halachic passage about the fighting men, and then roll it back, and perhaps we're getting a new understanding of the story of Moshe and these two guys. That one of them really is the instigator. One of them is this guy singled out. And then we look at the last story. I just want to do this briefly. The last story with, with uh, Benoit Beno Druel. What's the odd phrase that's used there? Dalo dalalanu. 
I mentioned earlier that a couple of years ago when we were learning the story of the birth of Moshe, that the whole story of the birth of Moshe is presented as a foreshadowing of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. That's why Chazal make the Midrash about Bat Paro's arm. What's that? That's the Yad Chazaka and Zroa Nituya, God's outstretched arm to save B'nai Israel. That's what they're seeing the template here. The miraculous salvation of the baby from the depths. The miraculous salvation of B'nai Israel from the depths of Mitzrayim. I think that this is also part of the story. Because what's the verb used when Moshe gets the water? And water is a critical piece throughout Moshe's life. Dalo Dalala. <laughs> So literally, dalo dalal means he drew it, but you have a better word, sha'av. Why does he use dalo? What's dal? To be poor and to be lowly. In fact, that's why that's what a pale is, because you go down into the deep and below and then brought up. What did Moshe do for us? He went into the depths and he brought up the water. Again, a foreshadowing of Moshe Rabbeinu as the Redeemer, which is coming up. So these stories that we hear at, in Moshe's youth that go from being in the palace to being in exile are stories that not only help enlighten us about some halachic passages, but stories which serve further as foreshadowing of the role that Moshe is going to play. They're not just, obviously not just entertainment, they're also not just telling us about his character, but they're giving us a little bit of a model of what we can expect to see. Last piece of the puzzle. What happens if he kills somebody? Either you die, or you don't. True? False. Please take a look at Source 9. And you'll see one other piece that we get from Moshe Rabbeinu. Let me draw Josh picks up on this. You kill somebody, you die. What happens if you kill by accident? We got a new thing called Irmiklat. And now, what does it say in in uh, a little part about it? What does he have to be able to do then? <coughs> have a full life. What does Moshe Rabbeinu do? We don't know the circumstances how he killed this guy. Maybe he killed the guy and not, didn't intend to kill him, just intend to ward him off. What does Moshe do? He runs. What does he do when he runs? He doesn't stay on the run. He stops, he settles down, he marries and has a child. Bachai. So the story of Moshe Rabbeinu is our earliest example of a real Yermiklat kind of, kind of scenario. And you see in the other ones, by the way, how long do you stay in Yermiklat? When does Hashem tell Moshe, you can go back to Mitzrayim? Which is Paro, obviously. Right? Paro's dead, amnesty declared, you can go back. And so the, the template of Yermiklat seems to play out in this scene here. So there's so much of the law that's going to be given at Sinai that's already playing in to Moshe's life, and so much of that law helps actually illuminate parts of these stories, which then them, themselves act as foreshadowing, both for Yitzhak Mitzrayim and for the law that will be given in its... Can I ask you one thing? Sure. Thank you.